Section 1 of Astounding Stories, 13, January 1931, by Various. The Dark Side of Antry, by Sewell Peasley Wright, Part A. An officer of the Special Patrol Service dropped in to see me the other day. He was a young fellow, very sure of himself, and very kindly towards an old man. He was doing a monograph, he said, for his own amusement, upon the early forms of our present offensive and defensive weapons. Could I tell him about the first Duber spheres, and the earlier disintegrator rays, and the crude atomic bombs we tried back when I first entered the service? I could, of course, and I did, but a man's memory does not improve in the course of a century of earth years. Our scientists have not been able to keep a man's brain as fresh as his body, despite all their vaunted progress. There is a lot these deep thinkers in their great laboratories don't know. The whole universe gives them the credit for what's been done, yet the men of action who carried out the ideas—but I'm getting away from my pert young officer." He listened to me with interest and toleration. Now and then he helped me out when my memory failed me on some little detail. He seemed to have a very fair theoretical knowledge of the subject. It seems impossible, he commented, when we had gone over the ground he had outlined that the service could have done its work with such crude and undeveloped weapons, does it not?" He smiled in a superior sort of way, as though to imply we had probably done the best we could under the circumstances. I suppose I should not have permitted his attitude to irritate me, but I am an old man, and my life has not been an easy one. "'Youngster,' I said, like many old people, I prefer spoken conversation, back in those days the service was handicapped in every way. We lacked weapons, we lacked instruments, we lacked popular support and backing. But we had men in those days who did their work with the tools that were at hand, and we did it well." "'Yes, sir,' the youngster said hastily. After all, a retired commander in the Special Patrol Service does rate a certain amount of respect, even from these perky youngsters. I know that, sir. It was the efforts of men like yourself who gave us the proud traditions we have today. "'Well, that's hardly true,' I corrected him. "'I'm not quite so old as that. We had a fine set of traditions when I entered the service, son. But we did our share to carry them on, I'll grant you that.' "'Nothing less than complete success,' quoted the lad almost reverently, giving the ancient motto of our service. "'That is a fine tradition for a body of men to aspire to, sir.' "'True, true.' The ring in the boy's voice brought memories flocking. It was a proud motto. As old as I am, the words bring a thrill even now, a thrill comparable only with that which comes from seeing old earth swell up out of the darkness of space after days of outer emptiness. Old earth, with her wispy white clouds and her broad seas. Oh, I know I'm provincial, but that is another thing that must be forgiven an old man." "'I imagine, sir,' said the young officer, "'that you could tell many a strange story of the service. 
and the sacrifices men have made to keep that motto the proud boast it is to-day. Yes, I told him, I could do that. I have done so. That is my occupation, now that I have been retired from active service. I— You are a historian? he broke in eagerly. I forgave him the interruption. I can still remember my own rather impetuous youth. Do I look like a historian? I think I smiled as I asked him the question, and held up my hands to him. Big brown hands they are, hardened with work, stained and drawn from old acid burns, and the bite of blue electric fire. In my day we worked with crude tools indeed, tools that left their mark upon the workmen. No, but—I waved the explanation aside. Historians deal with facts, with accomplishments, with dates and places and names of great men. I write—what little I do write of men and high adventures, so that in this time of softness and easy living some few who may read my scribblings may live with me those days when the worlds of the universe were strange to each other, and there were many new things to be found and marvelled at. "'And I'll venture, sir, that you find much enjoyment in the work,' commented the youngster with a degree of perception with which I had not credited him. True. As I write, forgotten faces peer at me through the mists of the years, and strong, friendly voices call to me from out of the past. "'It must be wonderful to live the old adventures through again,' said the young officer hastily. "'Youth is always afraid of sentiment in old people. Why this should be, I don't know. But it is so.' The lad—I wish I had made a note of his name—I predict a future for him in the service—left me alone, then with the thoughts he had stirred up in my mind. Old faces, old voices, old scenes, too. Strange worlds, strange peoples, a hundred, a thousand different tongues. Men that came only to my knee, and men that towered ten feet above my head. Creatures possessed of all the attributes of men except physical form, that belonged only in the nightmare realms of sleep. An old man's most treasured possessions, his memories. A face drew close out of the flocking recollections. The face of a man I had known and loved more than a brother so many years. Dear God, how many years ago! Anderson Croy. Search all the voluminous records of the bearded historians, and you will not find his name. No great figure of history was this friend of mine, just an obscure officer on an obscure ship of the Special Patrol Service. And yet— there is a people who owe to him their very existence. I wonder if they have forgotten him. It would not surprise me. The memory of the universe is not a reliable thing. Anderson Croy was, like most of the officer personnel of the Special Patrol Service, a native of Earth. They had tried to make a stoop-shouldered dabbler in formulas out of him, but he was not the stuff from which good scientists are molded. He was young when I first knew him, and strong. He had mild blue eyes and a quick smile, and he had a fine steely courage that a man could love. I was in command, then, of the Ertak, my second ship. I inherited Anderson Croy with the ship, and I liked him from the first time I laid eyes upon him. As I recall it, we worked together on the Ertak for nearly two years, Earth time. We went through some tight places together. I remember our experience shortly after I took over the Ertak on the monstrous planet Kalor, whose tiny gentle people were attacked by strange vapid things that came down upon them from the fastness of the polar cap, and—but I wander from the story I wish to tell here. 
an old man's mind is a weak and weary thing that totters and weaves from side to side like a worn-out ship it is hard to keep on a straight course we were out on one of those long monotonous patrols skirting the outer boundaries of the known universe that were at that time before the building of all the many stations we have to-day a dreaded part of the special patrol service routine not once had we landed to stretch our legs slowing up to atmospheric speed took time and we were on a schedule that allowed for no waste of even minutes we approached the various worlds only close enough to report and to receive an assurance that all was well a dog's life but part of the game my log showed nearly a hundred all's well reports as i remember it when we slid up to antri which was so far as size is concerned one of our smallest ports a call Antri, I might add, for the benefit of those who have forgotten their maps of the universe, is a satellite of A411, which in turn is one of the largest bodies of the universe, and both uninhabited and uninhabitable. Antri is somewhat larger than the moon, Earth's satellite, and considerably farther from its controlling body. "'Report our presence, Mr. Croy,' I ordered wearily, and please ask Mr. Corey to keep a sharp watch on the attraction meter." these huge bodies such as a411 are not pleasant companions at space speeds a few minutes trouble spaceships gave trouble in those days and you melted like a drop of solder when you struck the atmospheric belt yes sir there never was a crisper young officer than croy i bent over my tables working out our position and charting our course for the next period in a few seconds croy was back his blue eyes gleaming sir an emergency is reported on Antri. We are to make all possible speed to Oreo, their governing city. I gather that it is very important. Very well, Mr. Croy. I can't say the news was unwelcome. Monotony kills young men. Have the disintegrator ray generators inspected and tested. Turn out the watch below in such time that we may have all hands on duty when we arrive. If there is an emergency, we shall be prepared for it. I shall be with Mr. Corey in the navigating room. If there are any further communications, relay them to me there." I hurried up to the navigating room, and gave Corey his orders. "'Do not reduce speed until it is absolutely necessary,' I concluded. "'We have an emergency call from Antri, and minutes may be important. How long do you make it to Oreo?' "'About an hour to the atmosphere, say an hour or more, to set down in the city. I believe that's about right, sir.' I nodded, frowning at the twin charts with their softly glowing lights, and turned to the television disc, picking up Antri without difficulty. Of course, back in those days we had the huge and cumbersome discs, their faces shielded by a hood, that would be suitable only for museum pieces now. But they did their work very well, and I searched Antri carefully, at varying ranges, for any sign of disturbances. I found none. The dark portion, of course, I could not penetrate. Antri has one portion of its face that is turned forever from its sun, and one half that is bathed in perpetual light. The long twilight zone was uninhabited, for the people of Antri are a sun-loving race, and their cities and villages appeared only in the bright areas of perpetual sunlight. Just as we reduced to atmospheric speed, Croy sent up a message. The Governing Council sends word that we are to set down on the platform atop the Hall of Government the large square white building in the center of the city. They say we will have no difficulty in locating it." I thanked him, and ordered him to stand by for further messages, if any, 
and picked up the far-flung city of Oreo in my television disc. There was no mistaking the building Croy had mentioned. It stood out from the city around it, cool and white, its mighty columns glistening like crystal in the sun. I could even make out the landing platform, slightly elevated above the roof on spidery arches of silvery metal. We sped straight for the city at just a fraction of space speed, but the hand of the surface temperature gauge crept slowly toward the red line that marked the dangerous incandescent point. I saw that Corey, like the good navigating officer he was, was watching the gauge as closely as myself, and hence said nothing. We both knew that the Antrians would not have sent a call for help to a ship of the special patrol service if there had not been a real emergency. Corey had made a good guess in saying that it would take about an hour, after entering the gaseous envelope of Antri, to reach our destination. It was just a few minutes, Earth time, of course, less than that when we settled gently onto the landing platform. A group of six or seven Antrians, dignified old men, wearing the short, loosely belted white robes that we found were their universal costume, were waiting for us at the exit of the Urtrak whose sleek, smooth sides were glowing dull red. "'You have hastened, and that is well, sirs,' said the spokesman of the committee. "'You find Antri in dire need.' He spoke in the universal language, and spoke it softly and perfectly. "'But you will pardon me for greeting you with that which is of necessity uppermost in my mind, and in the minds of these my companions. Permit me to welcome you to Antri, and to introduce those who extend those greetings.' Rapidly he ran through a list of names, and each of the men bowed gravely in acknowledgment of our greetings. I have never observed a more courteous nor a more courtly people than the Antrians. Their manners are as beautiful as their faces. Last of all their spokesman introduced himself. Bori Tolber, he was called, and he had the honor of being master of the council, the chief executive of Antri. When the introductions had been completed, the committee led our little party to a small cylindrical elevator which dropped us, swiftly and silently, on a cushion of air to the street level of the great building. Across a wide, gleaming corridor our conductors led us, and stood aside before a massive portal through which ten men might have walked abreast. We found ourselves in a great chamber with a vaulted ceiling of bright, gleaming metal. At the far end of the room was an elevated rostrum flanked on either side by huge, intricate masses of statuary, of some creamy, translucent stone that glowed as with some inner light. Semicircular rows of seats, each with its carved desk, surmounted by numerous electrical controls, occupied all the floor space. None of the seats was occupied. "'We have excused the Council from our preliminary deliberations,' explained Bory Tolber, "'because such a large body is unwieldy.' My companions and myself represent the executive heads of the various departments of the Council, and we are empowered to act. He led us through the great Council chamber and into an anteroom, beautifully decorated, and furnished with exceedingly comfortable chairs. "'Be seated, sirs,' the Master of the Council suggested. We obeyed silently, and Bory Tolber stood before, gazing thoughtfully into space. "'I do not know just where to begin,' he said slowly. "'You men in uniform know, I presume, but little of this world of ours. I presume I had best begin far back. Since you are navigators of space, undoubtedly, you are acquainted with the fact that Antria is a world divided into two parts, one of perpetual night 
and the other a perpetual day, due to the fact that Antri revolves but once upon its axis during the course of its circuit of its sun, thus presenting always the same face to our luminary. We have no day and night such as obtain on other spheres. There are no set hours for working, nor for sleeping, nor for pleasure. The measure of a man's work is the measure of his ambition, or his strength, or his desire. It is also with his sleep and with his pleasures. It is, it has been, a very pleasant arrangement. Ours is a fertile country, and our people live very long and very happily, with little effort. We have believed that ours was the nearest of all the worlds to the ideal, that nothing could disturb the peace and happiness of our people. We were mistaken. There is a dark side to Antri, a side upon which the sun never has shone, a dismal place of gloom which is like the night upon other worlds. No Antrian has, to our knowledge, ever penetrated this part of Antri, and lived to tell of his experience. We do not even till the land close to the twilight zone. Why should we, when we have so much fine land upon which the sun shines bright and fair always, save for the two brief seasons of rain? We have never given thought to what might be on the dark face of Antri. Darkness and night are things unknown to us. We know of them only from the knowledge which has come to us from other worlds. And now, now we have been brought face to face with a terrible danger which comes to us from that other side of this sphere. A people have grown there, a terrible people that I shall not try to describe to you. They threaten us with slavery, with extinction. Four ara ago, the Antrians have their own system of reckoning time, just as we have on earth, instead of using the universal system based upon the Inaro. An ara corresponds to about fifty hours earth time. We did not know that such a people existed. Now their shadow is upon all our beautifully sunny country, and unless you can aid us, before other help can reach us, I am convinced that Antri is doomed. For a moment not one of us spoke. We sat there, staring at the old man who had just ceased speaking. Only a man ripened and seasoned with the passing of years could have stood there before us and uttered so quietly and solemnly words such as had just come from his lips. Only in his eyes could we catch a glimpse of the torment which gripped his soul. "'Sir,' I said, and have never felt younger than at that moment, when I tried to frame some assurance to this splendid old man who had turned to me and my youthful crew for succour, "'we shall do what it lies within our power to do, but tell us more of this danger which threatens.' "'I am no man of science, and yet I cannot see how men could live in a land never reached by the sun.' There would be no heat, no vegetation. Is that not so?" "'Would that it were,' replied the Master of the Council bitterly. "'What you say would be indeed the truth, were it not for the great river and seas of our sunny Antri, which bear their heated waters to this dark portion of our world, and make it habitable. And as for this danger there is little to be said. At some time, men of our country, men who fish or venture beyond the water in commerce, had been borne all unwillingly across the shadowy twilight zone and into the land of darkness. They did not come back, but they were found there and despoiled of their minories. Somehow these creatures who dwell in darkness determined the use of the minori, and now that they have resolved that they shall rule all this sphere, they have been able to make their threat clear to us. Perhaps, and Bori Tolber smiled faintly and terribly, 
You would like to have that message direct from its bearer? End of Part A